Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. This is your host Cici Wong, and you're listening to my interview podcast, where I chat with people from all walks of life to hear their stories and to share insights we can all learn from. In today's episode, you'll hear from my good friend James Griffin. James has been working in community and social services in the city of Toronto for the past eight years. Now he and I also met in journalism school, like my previous guest Ethan Lowe. But since then, he has moved on to working with children and youth, and more recently became a behavior therapist working with kids with autism and other developmental challenges. During our catch-up, we talked about what it means to have an impact in your career, what life is like for children with developmental challenges. How to build a relationship with children and how to respond to their bad behavior. I hope you enjoy. Ah, thanks for having me.、Uh, very excited to be here and、uh, catch up. Thanks, Cici. All right.、Uh, can you please begin by introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure.、Uh, my name is James Griffin.、Uh, I'm currently a behavior therapist. And I've previously worked as a child and youth worker for about three to four years,、uh, in addition to、uh, working as a residential support worker、um, and a daycare teacher, among a multitude of other jobs in the community and social services field.、Mm-hmm. So, what made you decide to switch from journalism all the way to social work? So, I had become pretty disillusioned with just journalism. Uh, as kind of a future career for me, by the time I was in my third year of university, which I'm sure you know that kind of notion is shared with a lot of people when they're you know, 17 to 20 and they do a degree, and maybe halfway through or a little while in, they realize maybe this isn't exactly what I had envisioned. So by the summer of third year university, in my journalism degree, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life. And I ended up taking a summer job at a camp for、uh, youth aged seven to seventeen、uh, with neurological conditions, and I ended up really loving that job.、Uh, I was really drawn to the different perspectives the clients would have and take, and how they viewed the world. And I really found it purposeful to help guide them, indulge in them, and help them build skills、uh, in order for them to thrive. In you know, are in the larger community. So from there, that really changed my trajectory, closer and closer to social services. So I remember in my last year of journalism school, I did a TV documentary capstone course, and then I ended up being the director for like the documentary, and it was on this camp that I actually worked at. Oh, so、uh, for me, you know, I, that ca- kind of solidified. More and more that this was what I wanted to do. I wasn't sure exactly how I wanted to do this, but I knew I wanted to work with youth in some sort of capacity.、Um, and then over the years, trying out different jobs, working in different sectors, I've definitely found that my niche seems to be in the、uh, behavior therapy sector, so the ABA sector, which、uh, I find really fascinating for a lot of reasons. So tell me a little bit more about that camp experience and what exactly about working with youth that completely changed your career path. I think it kind of boils down to the idea of how you make an impact and what change is like as you get older versus maybe when you're thirteen to fifteen. 
in high school, a lot of the courses, and even university, a lot of the courses I would take, the professor or the mindset of the class was that you needed to do something gigantic and huge in order to affect, really affect change. And I think I bought into that, um, and that's part of the reason journalism seems so appealing to me. When doing this camp job, what I found is that making kind of small changes or big changes in an individual seemed to me to actually end up being more impactful uh, for myself. And it helped me kind of just envision and understand how change is made in, uh, in a way that I think made more sense to me personally. And so I was very attached to the idea of like how micro change eventually impacts like on a more macro level versus some sort of grand gesture or grand uh, change happening all at once. And so for me, working with youth and seeing that connection and seeing those changes gradually build uh, to me seems like, uh, in my opinion, I guess philosophically, the yeah the correct way to really influence and make mm. positive change in the world. Yeah, good for you. Tell me about some of the challenges in your field, because based on my understanding, um, it's also a very stressful job to be working as a social worker. Sure. Uh, so uh, just to clarify, I've never been a social worker. Um, that like specifically, work I've worked in social services, child and youth work. Social worker is a designation given to uh, people who have completed. A social work degree and are registered under the OCSWSSW, which is the Ontario College of Social Workers. Like, com but it's a very common misconception mm. um, because uh, a lot of the time when people hear about what I do, they'll even my wife will will tell like my in laws like, oh, he he does social work. So oh. <laughs> just wanted to just wanted to give a shout out to the actual social workers <laughs> that I, I promise I'm you know n not ignoring that. Yeah. Um, so as far as challenges in in the work I've done, which you know falls under child and youth work, behavior therapy, developmental service worker, residential support worker, um, I think the biggest challenges uh, really vary from day to day. But probably the most obvious and the most visible ones are. Uh, the, the the behaviors of the clients, whether mm -hmm. that be the emotional barriers and challenges they have, what acting out might look like from them. So you might see some uh, verbal aggression, physical aggression. And then the probably most stressful part of all of that is how do you as the worker, as the therapist, um, deal with that? And how do you de-escalate that? And how do you work to make sure that... Um, you find out what the reason behind those kind of um, behaviors are mm -hmm. and how do you help decrease the ones that you know are harmful to them and increase and establish the behaviors that will really help them thrive more in their community and in their future as they keep growing. And I think all that coupled with the fact that you're working, not it's not only you and the staff team, you're also potentially working with families with, you know, this client's brother, sister, uh, mother, father, grandparents, uh, uncles, whoever is maybe the person taking care of them or the person they live with or the person who's kind of their their closest uh, relationship. You all are kind of working together as this multidisciplinary team. And that's not even bringing in uh, all the other clinicians, you know, uh, so you might get an occupational therapist another behavior therapist, a psychiatrist, a psychologist. And uh, so one of the big stressors of these kind of jobs is making sure that there's consistency among all different uh, 
parts of the care team. Because if one if one part is not on the same page and, you know, maybe they're working with this client in a completely different way that contradicts another one mm-hmm. and the client loses consistency and then the treatment, the interventions, um, the work we do is not as efficient as it needs to be. And so, you know, they end up suffering or they end up not making as much progress as maybe they could have otherwise. So mm-hmm. That can be very stressful, especially when you have conflicting ideologies about the best way to mm-hmm. to serve the client. So. Yeah. So you need to be very communicative in your job and also be really good at dealing with people, your clients. Uh, speaking about that, how exactly do you try to understand your clients? Uh, I mean, it varies. It's very individualized. It's kind of like asking, uh, you know, how, how do you ha- um, converse with one friend, maybe with another, right? Uh, we all have different relationships in our life and how we build those and um, maintain those. Uh, so, for example, you know, my relationship with, say, my mother and the way we chat with each other and the function of our relationship is much different than maybe one of my friends I met from high school. And it's the same when you're working with, with each youth. You know, there are some youth where, um, for me, it's very easy to build a relationship. Maybe there's a common interest, uh, maybe just kind of my demeanor, my tone, my voice is very appealing to them. And so I'll I maybe have act this certain way and that's the most efficient way to build a relationship and then thus start the therapy, right? Mm-hmm. Whether that be acquiring a new skill, reducing a behavior, um, or looking at different strategies or, or introducing them to something new. Versus, you know, someone else, it might be different. Maybe the best approach is... Um, less of kind of a jokey relationship because maybe they maybe they misinterpret that maybe there's miscommunication with that right um so a great example is uh, sarcasm so many of us love to use sarcasm i am one of them i think it's probably the funniest type of humor uh but one thing i have to remind myself is not all clients actually understand that right uh autism is a communicative condition and one thing that can be hard is certain more subtle social cues. And it's not always the case, but a lot of the time, sarcasm can be a very subtle social cue. I'm sure you've had conversations that go like, wait, were you being sarcastic? I wasn't sure. Right. And and, and that's us who in general have probably very complex understanding of those social cues. So I, I have to be very cognizant of who I'm talking to and what's the best way to build that relationship. Um, so I might use a more neutral tone with someone who maybe has a tougher time with uh, with social cues, or I might make my emotions a lot more obvious. Like I might do a huge smile, so they they know I'm happy, not just me saying I'm happy, right? Um, so we talk about um, haptics, um, which is touch communication through touch. Okay. So you know. Um, some youth, you know, a, a pat on the back, a high five, those sorts of things mm-hmm. can be much more impactful in, in communicating than saying great job because of that. That's how they communicate a little bit better. And, you know, same with proxemics, right? My body language tells a lot um, just by how I'm sitting or standing or how close I am to a client. And depending on your relationship and depending on their comfort level, right? You want you communicate a lot just by doing that. Um so as far as building relationship, I know this is a bit of a long-winded answer is that um, there's a lot of communication that happens that isn't verbal whatsoever. And 
as a clinician, it's really important that you're able to be aware of this at all times because you could be communicating something non-verbally that you're not even aware of. Mm-hmm. And that can help, that can either help or potentially mitigate the relationship you're building with your clients. Mm-hmm. Specifically on your work with uh, children with autism, because you said that some of them have communication uh, barriers, right? How do you, um, you know, try to convey something to them or decode what they're trying to say to you? As far as decoding, that can always be like a long problem solving thing. So um, there are youth who might say something like, go to your room. When you add, maybe you say, hey, let's go for a walk. And the kid might say something like, go to your room or uh, I'm not looking at you. And you might think like, oh, uh, like what, what does that mean? I didn't ask you to go to your room. So, for example, problem solving of that is that you have to find out what the function of them saying that is. So for someone like that, they might be saying go to a room and what they really mean is I'm upset. Maybe they heard, maybe they've watched on TV or seen someone say something similar and they associate being upset with that phrase. So with things like that um, or even just behavioral actions... It's kind of to you as a clinician and being part of a clinical team to problem solve and be and do a little detective work. And it doesn't always come in the moment. It might, it might not even come in the in a week. Mm. So a big part of especially being a behavior therapist is finding out what's called the function of the behavior, which is, I guess, a fancy way of saying, why are they doing what they're doing? What are what are what is what are they communicating by doing this behavior? And, uh, I, you know, you, you see some things that seem potentially very odd to you, but to them make perfect sense. Um, you know, you might see a youth uh, drop a toothbrush and you're confused. Why are they putting a toothbrush on the, the ground? It wasn't even time to brush our teeth. But maybe in the past when they were at home, every time they dropped a toothbrush, mom or dad would come and talk to them. So what, so what you could decipher, what could potentially mean is they're dropping a toothbrush and it makes a loud sound and they get attention. They get someone coming to cater to them. So there's time, it could be any sort of variable, but you have to look at each behavior and think and do some detective work and figure out kind of, well, why are they doing this? What, and what has happened in the past? And so things like data collection and mm. communication, as we talked about early with, you know, family, other clinicians, uh, is essential to helping find out these these behaviors and what they mean. I see. So do you work with um, your clients on an individual base uh, or do you work with them in groups during these therapy sessions? Sure. So, so currently what I'm doing, I, I do both. So there'll be some days I will do a one-on-one session and sometimes uh, I'll do a group session, usually with uh, two to three clients. And uh, they're very different. Uh, usually uh, with one-to-one, you're targeting very specific kind of skills. And then with group, a lot of it is helping uh, transition them to um, a more group environment, you know, uh, or like a classroom environment. Or uh, if they're older, a more uh, social environment. Maybe you're kind of replicating an after-school club or um 
those sorts of things. So group is a lot about this, uh, the social of it all. Mm. And one-to-one doesn't mean there's not any social opportunities in one-to-one, but one-to-one is um, very specific, individualized kind of skill acquisition. So that's, that's how they differ. Could you give me an example of what like a session looks like? You talk about skill acquisition. What kind of skills are you usually trying to help them acquire? Sure. Uh, so yeah, I, I can give kind of a template. Uh, as far as skill acquisition, it's it's a pretty broad term because, you know, as we mentioned, each client is individualized in the skills they have, the skills they might need. Um, some common one for more early learners is um, there, there's this kind of group of fine motor and gross motor skills mm-hmm. that is sometimes affectionately referred to as the big six. Okay. And so they're, they're seen as kind of these essential fine and gross motor functions you need to be um, to be kind of successful in a lot of your daily routines. So examples of this are grasping, uh, twisting, pulling, pushing. Um, one, one big skill that I've worked on in the past is uh, what's called pincer grip. And it's surprising how much you use it for. So you might have a skill acquisition program for a pincer grip that it first involves having the the client imitate the motion, right? So mm-hmm. they start to gain a feel of what it looks like. And then there's different things you can do to help build that dexterity. One really popular example is using a clothespin and pinching it mm-hmm. uh, multitudes of times to help build that strength in that muscle and build that pincer grip. Other things like, okay, what do you use a pincer grip for, James? Is what people <laughs> might be asking. A uh, big thing is actually writing. You use um, if you look at how you hold a pencil, yep. it's very similar to a pincer grip. And so, what you might do for that, if you have a youth who's really struggled with with writing or holding their pencil properly, or having enough muscle in that pincer grip to be able to write properly, is you might do what's called a task analysis, which means you're breaking down kind of every step um, in order to get to that motion of holding the pencil correctly. Mm-hmm. So with a skill acquisition program like that, you might start with maybe the pencil on the table. And the first the first goal is just for them to kind of touch the pencil. And then maybe the second part of the goal is they touch the pencil and lift it like, like so. And I know people can't see this, but like lift it up in the air. And then the next step might be you touch the pencil, pick it up, and then you kind of flip it backwards so that it's resting in the inside of your... Um, between your index finger and your your thumb. And then the next one might be gently putting down your hand on the table with the pencil and then maybe rotating it a bit so that it's holding properly. And then you slowly, you slowly build these things in order for them to practice so it becomes more organic and comfortable. There's other things you can do um, as far as skill acquisition. Gross motor and fine motor are a really big deal. But there's there's a multitude. It could you could do things like self regulation, so learning what to do when I feel upset, and you know the first step of that might be recognizing how I'm feeling, because um, a lot of the time when we are we have heightened emotions, um, we're not able to recognize exactly how happy, upset, excited, silly, tired, whatever we are, and so especially with earlier learners, that can be really important to help build that repertoire. Because if they're able to identify where they are with their emotion, then you can help build in strategies for de-escalation for them. So when they do get upset, they said, oh, I know to do this to keep myself and the people around me safe because I've practiced this in 
built the skill with the therapist. Uh, and then I'll, I'll give um, one more because I talk a lot about skill acquisition, but there's also another big part of uh, behavior therapy is behavior reduction. So sometimes you want to target um, significant behaviors that potentially there's a safety risk or some harm that you want to decrease or potentially uh, get rid of completely. And so there's strategies for that too. There's a multitude and it's it can get very specific but an example uh, of that is maybe say a client is screaming a lot in class and you're wondering, okay, how do I get this client to scream less? And with anything in any sort of behavior therapy, the first thing you want to do other than building a relationship is finding out uh, what their reinforcer is. And a reinforcer is anything that makes it more likely for them to kind of follow whatever whatever uh, goal or objective or direction you give. So it'll increase the likelihood that whatever you want them to do, they're more likely to do it because they know that they're receiving this reinforcer if they follow through. So a great example for a, a younger learner might be, okay, they're screaming a lot in class and you want to target maybe a, maybe their, their group time or their lunch time to reduce that screaming. And you can do what's called a DRO is one example, and it stands for uh, differential reinforcement um, omittance. I believe it's omittance. Either way, <laughs> I will, I'll check after. So anyone who catches me on that, I understand. Uh, but a DRO is the, it basically means is that you want to um, reinforce something for the behavior not occurring. Okay. So for this, you might get something like a timer for this learner and said, okay, Every say every minute you do not scream, you will get say they like chocolate, you'll get a piece of chocolate. And so you'd start the timer. And then every time that they the a minute goes by and the timer goes off and they haven't screamed, you immediately give them, you know, a piece of chocolate. And you then you do those these sorts of things. And then okay, maybe they've been successful a lot with a minute. Then you'd see like, okay, we're gonna increase it to two minutes now. And then you slowly increase more and more time right with with this reinforcer. And then the hope is that you can eventually kind of fade that away um, from them because now, you know, they've learned and they've been reinforced and they've got that social praise of um, not screaming. Mm -hmm. So that, that'd be an example of, of a way you might reduce a behavior. Mm. That's a very basic. It, it, it's usually much more involved. There's much more other components, but that's like kind of a basic, uh, basic way of looking at it. I see. So besides, um, you know, fine motor skills that you're teaching these uh, kids and early learners, as well as um, some of the emotional um, expression uh, issues, what are some other uh, skills or uh, challenges that most um, parents and teachers send their kids to you for? Sure. Uh, so one of the most popular is, um, uh, as we've described, right, communication is mm -hmm. a big challenge. And you may run into clients who actually don't speak. And so you're uh, part of what you can do is look for alternative ways for them to be able to communicate. And so one of the most popular uh, examples of this is what's called the picture exchange communication system, which is usually uh, known as PECS. That's how you, someone will probably bring it up. They won't say the, the whole thing. And the idea of this is that you have essentially kind of a binder book with a different set of pictures and through doing this, the, this training with, with the youth, 
Um, the idea is that they can take a picture and now the picture could be something they want. It could be a feeling, it could be a request, uh, and that they're able to take that picture and bring it to the person they want to communicate with. And, and that is kind of their voice. Mm-hmm. So that's a way to help build communication for, for youth who are, um, nonverbal. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that's a huge one, especially because what's great about PEX is that it's such a universal system. So, this the binder itself can be kind of generalized to, to almost any environment if it's done correctly. Mm-hmm. Can you just um, give us a sense of just how important these verbal skills are for children? So much of life in general is knowing how to communicate and how to express yourself. A great common example is a lot of these youth we work with, especially the nonverbal ones, they might be in extreme pain, maybe a stomach ache. So for anyone listening, just imagine yourself, you have like the worst stomach ache in your entire life and you have no way to tell anybody about that. And you're like five years old. It is torture, right? So much of us are so lucky to be able to, even at like five years old, be able to say, I'm in pain. It hurts here. You know, that itself is is powerful in its own right to be able to express that. And it's easy to take that kind of understanding and expression for granted so for for this community and and this population i think it's really important regardless of diagnosis or non-diagnosis to help and aid individuals in being able to communicate Mm -hmm. and express themselves and and you know be able to do things in their life in a more independent way so so yeah that that's the way i see it is doing these programs and gaining these skills will make their quality of life so much better. And so, you know, that their pain, whatever, um, or their thoughts, they can express and feel validated and maybe get the care they need. And maybe this leads to them, you know, um, learning more about school or when they get a job, being able to communicate better and, you know, and have accomplishments. So I I don't think it can be overstated how important Mm -hmm. having some sort of communication tool in your life is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious about your previous work with um, children who don't have autism, but um, I think you've also worked with some youth who had some behavior challenges too, right? Uh, yeah, sure. I've worked with a, a multitude of different diagnoses and uh, mental health mm-hmm. challenges and barriers. Uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, a diagnosis is a diagnosis and it's and it should always be part of, you know, uh, your understanding. Um, but generally as like a child and youth, youth worker, my initial approach is always very much similar, uh, in the sense that, you know, what's on paper doesn't always translate to what you think this person is going to be. In fact, most of the time it is completely different uh and i i feel like i would be validated in that by most of my colleagues so it's important to read these kind of things support plans history diagnosis i think it's also important to go in um as non-judgmental as possible and just looking to build a relationship because my my guess is that most of the youth that i've ever worked with their entire life, they've had people read these things that at times can include, you know, the most negative things they've ever done. And 
they might be used to someone going in with that approach. Like I always think of like, imagine, you know, imagine you're going in for your first date, like a new job and everyone's read the worst thing you've ever done in your <laughs> oh, life. No. And like that they, they come in and you know, they probably read about the worst thing you've ever done in your life. So immediately you're kind of going with your guard up. You're ready to defend whatever they're going to say about it. You want to prove that they're wrong. You're, and so with a lot of the, the, the youth I've worked with previously, I, I find that there's that same kind of reaction at first. So as a clinician, it's really important to go in and just like, hey, you know, my name's James. What's up? What do you like? Cool, me too. And just work on building that relationship. And then, you know, um, being cognizant of those diagnoses and looking how you can support that. But, uh, you know, I think just getting to know them for who they are first and not what's on a profile um, with, you know, the the acknowledgement of safety, of course, and respect to to these things uh, is essential because I think all of us as people want to feel like we can build a connection and want to feel validated in who we are. And from there, I think the work becomes a lot easier and more encourageable for the uh, the people we work with. Mm. I see. Do you see huge transformations by the end of your sessions with them? Depends on the kid. You know, success and progress is defined differently, I think, for each client you work with. And, you know, much like uh, anyone you meet, someone's idea of success for themselves can vary differently from someone else. And it, the, it depends on a lot of factors, right? So we'll use data to really help empirically determine where the progress is happening, where things might need change. So we do see huge, huge changes in progress that, you know, sometimes can really even surprise us uh, with how quickly, uh, how quickly a scale is picked up or how much uh, a change has happened. Uh, but uh, even like the smaller progress is, is to me still really fascinating and amazing to see because then it's all about just continuing that work at home uh i'm trying to think of a, a great example um you know i i've i've seen youth who they came in they couldn't speak um they would just kind of wander around the classroom there was a lack of understanding of um any sort of imitation and then after a period of weeks you see you ask for a high five, they give a high five, you ask them to sit down, they sit down, you ask them to copy you, they copy you, they might start using packs and communicating with you. And all that, I, I'm, all that happening in such a short amount of time, to me is incredible. Uh, so yeah, I, I would say I've seen transformations. Uh, but I'm personally just as happy about the, the, the smaller progress. Um, you, the important thing as a clinician is you really just want to see the dumb data and any sort of change kind of slowly happening because then you know that that can continue to be increased. Uh, but yeah, we've definitely seen huge, huge improvements and changes. Other, you know, and if we didn't, otherwise, would, <laughs> would we really believe in the therapy? So yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay, that's good to hear. Yeah. But it like, like everything I think I've said to you already, CC, mm. it everything really differs from kid to kid because mm -hmm. we're all individuals. It's, you know, it's a lot different than, you know, something like a statistics job yeah. or something with empirical responses. Um, people are a lot more complex and 
one thing that might work one day in one session might be useless in the next. Mm. Um, like a strategy maybe you use to get them to match something really well. Mm-hmm. In one session, the next session, they might look at you and be like, well, whatever, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> um, like a day later, right? Yeah. Um, you also, like, what also sometimes happens is that you might see um, some of the skills that you've set as mastered due to the data. The data is determined that this skill is mastered. You might then later see them and that they can't do the skill anymore. Mm. You have to build it back up. Mm. Um, you know, progress isn't really a straight line, especially for these kind of skill programs. Yeah. So there's a lot of things going on at once to try and make sure that these skills are acquired, mastered, and most importantly, maintained and generalized. Mm-hmm. And by generalized, meaning... Maybe at school, um, the kid is really good about giving me packs, but then the kid goes home and the packs are there and the kid's not using them. Mm. So then you have to say, okay, we know they can do the skill, but if they haven't generalized it to a different environment, does it even matter? Because they're not functionally using it, right? Like what's the point of having a communication tool if you only use it a few hours a week Yeah, with me? <laughs> One sec. <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> So, so, <laughs> so that, I think that's, that's like other things to look at. Yeah. Having a skill and using a skill and maintaining a skill are just as important um, as just acquiring it initially. So. Do you ever lose your patience at work? Um, what do you mean by lose them? Like you just, um, you have to walk out the room because you're just so frustrated. Uh, no. I mean, look, it, it can always feel frustrating and a little defeated when um, maybe they're, you know, not making the progress uh, that you want them to, or you can tell maybe they're not that engaged today. Mm-hmm. Whereas you're like, come on, we got this. you like, you're about to master this skill. And in that moment, they're like, I don't care. <laughs> I, I, I'm not that interested. And then, so, you know, those days happen just like anybody, you know, there's some days uh, I'm getting up, I'm rocking for work, I'm on my best, I'm on top of everything. And other days, I'm exhausted and I go to work and I'm not as motivated for something that I was yeah. literally a day ago. It's the same with these programs, right? Um, some days they're, you're more motivated than others. Um, it's always important to look at data and look at what you're doing and reflect on it. Um, but there, there's also that acknowledgement that some days are just not as efficient and motivating as others. Um, but it, it, uh, that's not saying it's not normal to get frustrated or potentially burnt out. Maybe you need like a few minutes. Maybe you just need a small break. Um, and that's what parting, uh, being part of a um, clinical team is all about, right? Being able to communicate and lean on each other to make sure that you can support each other when things are challenging or you do feel stuck. And you need some help problem solving. I know for me, I talk to my colleagues and my supervisor regularly on certain programs where I feel like, oh, he like the client is just not getting it. I'm not sure what to do. And then you can work together and problem solve it in the same way that they might ask you, right? Oh, like what, what did you do to do this program? What worked for you? So that's why it's really important that you're part of a team mm-hmm. versus it's just you alone because not one person can problem solve all these things for every client we all have different things we bring as clinicians Mm -hmm. okay 
So I heard that you're also applying to a master's program. How is that going? So essentially what I'm doing now is ABA therapy. And for me, I wanted to do a master's in order to uh, increase uh, my certification level mm -hmm. to a master's level, which allow me to just do more. So yeah, very excited. Uh, I'll start in September. It's great. And hopefully, you know, it goes well, learn a lot and uh, get to be more involved in these kind of programs and the formulation of them and uh, maybe, you know, establish my own curriculum at some point mm -hmm. and my own uh, studies that can be published in a journal. So, Oh, look at that, excited. James. <laughs> I know. I know. When you asked me this six years ago. I would have laughed if you ever said I was going back to school. So. <laughs> it's a shocker for me too, but yeah, very exciting. Yeah, but good for you. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today, James. Yeah, no problem at all. Thanks for having me. That was James Griffin, a behavior therapist for children in Toronto. If you like what you just heard, please do subscribe to my podcast and head over to cc-wan.com. That's S-I-S-S-I-W-A-N-G.com for more interviews like this one, plus read about the guests you just heard and see pictures from the interviews. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the show. Until next time.